I don't know, hopefully we got enough bodies back there to help, you know. It's a good problem to have. Anybody want to help with children's ministry, let me know. I'm all ears. You may be, you know, you might just get an email soon too saying, come and help. So really good problem to have. We love seeing all the kids' faces. As I said, we're, uh, we're starting this new series on story. It's going to be a five-week series through the end of September. This Sunday, uh, really setting it up with the power of story, that stories are powerful. And then uh, going on next week to God's story, your individual story, listening to the stories of others. I'm really excited about that message, thinking about how we can listen to the stories of others, how important that is to have people in our lives who hear us, take us seriously, listen to wherever we're at in in our faith journey or just in life in general. And the final piece will be the church's story. See me covenant's story. Where are we as a church? What story are we writing? Where have we been, et cetera, et cetera. But when I launch into it today, talking about the power of story, really to set up the sermon series with the power of story. I heard uh, once about a camp director who was frantically searching for resources because they needed new canoes. They needed new canoes. And he was going out doing the fundraising thing to all the potential donors, all the denominational leaders, any church he could get into, any church board trying to get canoes. The canoes cost $500. They needed 10 canoes. So they needed roughly $5,000. And he was going in and making it his impassioned, impassioned plea for canoes for kids. Don't you care about kids? And canoes? But for some reason, the money wasn't flowing in like he wanted it to. It just wasn't going anywhere. And so finally, he only started asking himself, does nobody care? Is it me? Is my pitch bad? Am I just the worst salesperson ever? Am I not doing this well enough? Do, ki- do people not care about kids and canoes? What is going on? And he talked to a friend, and the friend said, well, why do these canoes matter so much to you? What is it with the canoes? Well, why not something else? Why is it the canoes? And he goes, well, here's the deal. We're at this camp, and the kids largely come from the inner city. And they come to the camp. They're out in the wilderness. And there's a day that the part of the wilderness program is that we take them out on this, this stretch of water. And they're on the stretch of water, and finally, you can hear it coming, but you can't see it yet. We come into a clearing, and there's this waterfall. There is this tremendous waterfall, and it takes their breath away, literally takes their breath away every single time. And the kids in this moment are just blown away by by the awesomeness of God and the beauty that this thing would be here that they've never seen before, never imagined, only seen in picture books. And they're just, it opens up conversations to God and how amazing God is right here at this waterfall, and it happens every time. You could picture it, right? You're on the waterway and you're with some kids from the city who have never seen this kind of thing and you come across this waterfall and they're just in awe and it opens the door for conversation. And so the friend, you know, he's telling this story and he says, well, quit selling the canoes. Sell the waterfall. Quit going and telling people that you need canoes. That's not that interesting. (laughs) Tell people that the canoes have this chance to make an impact on kids when they see the waterfall. Sell the waterfall. Now, I'm not telling you this story this morning so that all of you can be better marketing or fundraising people, okay? That's not the thing like, oh, okay, so in my business, because some of you are thinking that way now. Yeah, what's the waterfall in my business? Hey, that's a good thought. Save it for another time, all right? Save it for another time, all right? That's a lunch conversation. This Sunday, we're at church. We're talking about church stuff, I guess. That's what we do here. 
So I tell you this story, though, because when I heard this secondhand, and I don't know, it could be made up. It could be a made up story. I'm just telling you, I heard this secondhand at a conference. But it, it reminded me of the power of story. Story. Because in the end, it's not that interesting to say we need five, you know, 10 canoes, they cost $500 or $5,000. Can you just give us 20 bucks? You know, and we do this all the time as we talk about things, and we do it in other areas too. But we need to remember the power of story, that story, stories, they help you. You were there, right? You were in that moment. You were imagining the change that this is going to have on these kids, the potential, the, oh, the waterfall, yeah, I want to be a part of the waterfall. So me giving to the canoes is a part of the waterfall, the power of story. I was thinking about this too, that you know the, the fact is that most of us, if we're given statistics and given data, we forget those things really quickly. I'm sorry, people that love statistics and love data and love the facts and figures. Those are all really interesting. I love those things myself, but we remember stories. We remember stories. I was thinking about this, and this is maybe a terrible example because it's wading into politics, but I remember a few years back, and I think it was during the John McCain-Obama um, 2008 election cycle, where uh, I can still remember Joe the Plumber. Remember Joe the Plumber? You're like, yeah, I remember that. Why do we remember Joe the Plumber? He had little or nothing to do with the entire political process, but he was a story. He was a face. And so it became like a rallying cry for all the Joe the Plumbers out there. We've got to elect this person for the Joe the Plumbers. The stories captivate us. I think it had something to do with unemployment and things like that. I think. I don't remember, but I remember the story. The stories Stick with us. We are swayed by stories. So as followers of Jesus, we need to be thinking, begin to think about the stories, the waterfall moments in our lives that can help point others to Christ. A theologian that I love, he said it this way. He said, the problem with so much religious communication is that it aims at changing our minds. Have you thought about this this way over the years? So much religious communication, religious instruction, religious teaching tries to get people to simply change their mind. He said the result is that we can hear the message of the preacher without necessarily heeding the message. We don't do anything about the message. We don't do anything about the ideas that we've just learned. He says we can listen to the truth and agree with it, yet not change in response to it. And isn't that the truth, that facts, figures, ideas sometimes um, I think about this a lot when I've worked with kids and I think about the point of something like a confirmation program. We can teach the Bible. We can give them the Bible. We can give them all these things that we say, you need to know these things. These are the things that make a Christian. You need to know these things. But if we don't teach the life change that comes as a result of knowing the things, have we really made steps forward? And, and all of this reminds me then of, of Jesus using parables. In case you're like, but people need to know the things they need to know. I'm not disagreeing with you. But I know some of you are saying they're like, but wait, there's all these basic things people, yes, I agree. But it's interesting that Jesus, when he was on the earth, taught using stories. He taught using stories. And I have to be honest, though, when, I, when I've come across the way Jesus teaches, there were times in my life where I thought, Jesus was a little bit frustrating to me. Can I say that? Can I admit that? That Jesus frustrated me a little bit with the way he taught? It's like, Jesus, just give it to them plain. Quit telling these stories that make them uncertain about what you're really teaching. 
Because uh, if you go to Matthew 13, for example, if you're in Matthew 13, starting in verse 10, we have the situation where the disciples come to Jesus and they say, why do you speak to the people in parables? Why do you teach this way? Like, Maybe asking, like, why don't you just give it to them plain? If this stuff has the potential for like life and death and finding abundant living after the God of the universe, just give it to them plain. Why do you keep teaching the people in parables? Why do you use stories? And Jesus replies, and here's where I, I just, I don't know that I like his response. It says, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Then he quotes Isaiah. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. So as you catch this, the disciples are like, so Jesus, why do you keep using stories? Just give people the plain truth. You're confusing us all. In fact, we learn later, even the disciples are like, we don't understand what you're talking about. The guys who are spending most of their life with Jesus are going, we don't even know what you are talking about. And so they come to him and they're like, we're not picking up everything you're putting down, Jesus. And Matthew adds in verse 34, and this is the one that really, this verse that really like kind of frustrated me when I I first read this a long time ago. He says, uh, Matthew says, Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. All throughout chapter 13, he's teaching them parables teaching them parables about the kingdom of God. It says, Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. And this has both bothered and intrigued me. See, it bothers me because it's almost as if Jesus is like withholding information, intentionally keeping people in the dark. That's the way I first read this when I was like, this makes me mad. Why is he doing this? If this stuff is like potentially the things of life and death and and all of that, why doesn't he just tell them what they need to know? What is up with telling these convoluted stories where even his own disciples are going, "Um, can you explain to us what you're talking about? That's what happens two verses after that. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. Two verses later, the disciples are saying, can you explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field? Two verses later, his own disciples are going, yeah, it's great. You said we are the ones who have the secrets of the kingdom of God. We don't feel like we have the secrets of the kingdom of God. Can you maybe tell us those secrets? And it kind of bothered me, like, what is Jesus doing? Is he trying to hold information back? It doesn't seem fair. But then I realized this is Jesus, and he probably knows something that I don't. Maybe. I'm willing to admit that just today, though. And it intrigued me. I wonder, I wonder if he knows something about spiritual formation, if he knows something about human psychology, the way we learn, that, that maybe I haven't picked up on yet. It's just a guess that Jesus knows more than me. And so I, I wanted to go back again to that the theologian. I thought, maybe it turns out that stories have a way of changing us more than the facts, right? That stories, Jesus knows what he's up to here. He knows what he's up to here in telling stories to get people to change their lives. Because the theologian I mentioned earlier, he also says this about parables. He says, parables subvert the desire to make faith simple and understandable. And part of that is frustrating about parables. But then he says this, they do not offer the reader clarity 
for they refuse to be captured in the net of a single interpretation. Ooh, some of us don't like that too much. And instead demand, this is the part I love what he says, they demand our eternal return to their words, our wrestling with them, our puzzling over them. Stories demand our eternal return to the words. We have to keep coming back and saying, what was that really about? What was really going on there? What did this person really want me to do with this information? Why did they bother to tell the story? You could ask the same things of why did Pastor Chad bother to tell us a story about a waterfall? What did that do? You're going to keep coming back to that, the waterfall. If I just said there was a guy selling canoes and he needed a lot of money and he couldn't think of what he was doing, so then he changed his marketing scheme and sold a waterfall. If I just put it that bluntly, you'd be like, okay, that's sort of interesting. But when you tell the story of the waterfall, it changes everything. Parables, more often than facts and figures, they demand a response. Stories, they, 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 they come through the full range of human emotion. When you hear a story, it's not just logic and reason that you hear. It's your emotions that get engaged. They elicit feelings in us that make us want to do something. Stories have the ability not just to speak to our head, but to our hands and our feet. It's an interesting thing. That stories, psychologically, the, the brain studies show that stories, you start to put yourself into a story, imagine yourself as characters, and it makes you want to do something. And so Jesus used stories. I mean, can you imagine if Jesus just walked up to these same crowds and said, check it out. The kingdom of God's really important. You're going to want to know about it and walked away. Okay. It's as important as what? The other stuff the infomercial guys are selling? It's as important as the guy selling trinkets down the street? How important is it? It's just not that interesting. But Jesus says this. He teaches this in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven, and you can start to picture this, it's like a treasure hidden in a field, right? And when a man finds it, he hides it again. And then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has to buy that field. That's how valuable the kingdom of God is. And he continues, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who's looking for fine pearls. He's sailing everywhere, going everywhere, looking for fine pearls. And when he finds the pearl of great value, he sells everything he has and he buys it. Can you picture yourself, the the, you start to see how the parable, you start to go like, I could be that merchant. I'm looking, I'm seeking. I'm like these people looking for something of great value in this life, searching for meaning, searching for purpose. I'm searching and I'm searching and oh, if I could only find it. But just given the plain fact that, hey, the kingdom of God is really important, you guys. You should try hard to look for it. You might walk out of here and go, that's somewhat interesting. But if you could put yourself in the story, you start to really embody these characters and say, I want to do something about this. It keeps coming back to you. As, a, as the theologian said, you eternally return to the words, puzzling over them, wondering what they mean for you. One of my seminary professors said in a book he wrote on parables that parables have the ability to deceive the hearer into the truth. Stories can deceive us into the truth. It's like this. It's like the listeners that day come along and they go, well, he's not really talking to me. This isn't really for me. He's just telling these stories. 
That's interesting, not that challenging, but you walk away and weeks later, maybe hours later, but maybe weeks, maybe months, maybe a whole year later, you go, whoa, that story was about me. I am that son who left home thinking I can make a name for myself, spending everything on things I thought would give me life, but instead sucked the life out of me. I was alone. I was wondering, could I ever go back home? I was that son. That story was about me. And you mean to tell me, Jesus, in telling stories like that, that God would take me back? Is that what you're saying? And you puzzle on it and you think about it and you hear these stories and you imagine yourselves as the characters over and over again. So stories have a way of deceiving us into the truth. I love that phrase. Somebody took a, when I, when I mentioned that one time years ago, somebody was like, but Jesus doesn't deceive people. Don't you dare start saying that. I was like, no, it's not, he's not lying to us. It's a way of telling a story that, that basically gets behind the walls that we put up that say, I don't want to hear you. I don't have to listen to what you have to say, but we're open to a story. We're open to hearing a story more so than here's what you need to do. Here's the facts and figures. Go do it. We're open to stories, so stories are powerful. Paul, the Apostle Paul, knowing the power of story, and what I want to look at just briefly as, as we start to, to move towards the last half here, Paul writes in his letters to, uh, to, to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 3.3, 3, he, says, he says this, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? This is starting in verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 3.3. 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? And if you remember, we've talked about this, uh, this a few weeks ago. Paul was up against these guys who later he calls the so-called super apostles, who have gone in and have, have kind of swayed the people to a different understanding of the message of Christ than what Paul had given them. And so he says, are we, are we trying to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? And then he says this, you yourselves, talking to the believers in Corinth, you yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ to the result of our ministry, not written with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. So Paul comes in and says, I don't need letters of recommendation, background checks, references. Here's my three references from the last town I was visiting. Call those guys if you want to know about me and my ministry. He says, the, the, what I need, all I need to show that the message that I have been proclaiming is stories. And what stories does he need? The stories of the Corinthian believers who have changed their lives as a result of following Christ. So he says, look at the changed lives. Look at the stories these Corinthians' lives are telling. That should be proof enough of what I'm teaching proof enough of the message of Jesus that the Jesus story, salvation, redemption, restoration available in Christ, this is what it's about. Now, now it's interesting here because in some ways what I would say, and I could see some people maybe coming back at me on this, what I would say here on the, on the letters from Christ business and what, what Paul is saying that it isn't necessarily about memorizing all the right stuff that can show the efficacy, the success of ministry. You could look at it this way. Chad, we want to see how good of a pastor you've been. 
So we're going to find 20 of your former students of your ministries and ask them a bunch of questions. If they know the right answers, we will say you did a good job. If they know the right answers to Bible questions. Or we could say, let's look at those 20. Let's look at them and see, is their life producing fruit of Christ? Are they a letter from Christ? Is their life telling a story of the impact Jesus has had on their lives? The proof, Paul is saying, is that the proof is in each and every human life, human story, changed by Jesus when Jesus takes up residence in the heart of an individual. So this past weekend, I was reminded of my own faith journey, and I want to kind of end by telling my own, a little bit of my own story and how I think um, stories really matter to me. These waterfall moments really matter. This last weekend, my family and I had a chance to go to Alpine Camp and Conference Center um, up near Lake Arrowhead, and this is uh, the, the camp that our denomination owns. Um, it's a place that all of you should be sending your kids. Um, I don't know. I feel like I have to say that to represent the denomination well or something. <laughs> Um, but it was a great, great time. We got up there for two nights, and, uh, and I had this, this moment at camp. Camp has always had a place in my heart. Camp has been a huge formational place for me in my spiritual journey. And I had this moment in camp where, where it was like a waterfall movement, but you know what it had to do with? It had to do with foosball, okay? Not quite a waterfall, but foosball. My daughter and I were playing foosball in the rec hall, and uh, we were playing, and we were going, and uh, she was kind of asking me, like, well, when did you learn to play foosball, Dad? And all of a sudden, all these memories came back, and I remembered I learned to play foosball at Covenant Cedars Bible Camp in Hordeville, Nebraska. And so here I was with my daughter, and I, and I started thinking, like, oh, my goodness, we are having this moment where she's learning to play foosball at the Bible camp where we now live. And that kind of started jogging all these memories, and the power of story became evident in my own life because I remembered that foosball, it wasn't just foosball. It was that foosball was this thing that, and and the word foosball sounds really funny the more I say it. Um, (laughs) I don't even know, where do we come up with that word? Um, It became this thing because what would happen is we'd show up to camp, and you're a little fourth grader, and you're nervous about camp, you're there for the first time, you put your stuff in the cabin, and you, and you meet these other strangers, and you kind of go, okay, these are the people I'm going to be hanging out with all week. And I remember there's a pastor from a small town called Stromsburg, Nebraska, Pastor Bob Johnson, and he was my camp counselor for the week. And I was like, okay, this guy's kind of strange. I don't know him, and I'm supposed to hang out with him all week. But then we went to the rec hall. Everybody went to the rec hall, and we started playing foosball. And that was the place where we got to know each other and we would laugh and we, I'm pretty competitive so we're competing and starting to get a feel for who are these people and so foosball became this thing of making me feel safe at camp in a foreign place, first time away from mom and dad, first time away from all other familiar things. Foosball was this thing. And then my mind, because my, my mind went to foosball, the rec hall, oh, the rec hall. I remember the rec hall. See, this camp that I went to as a kid. Uh, we literally swam in a cow pond, which I didn't learn until years later, when I now could assess the situation as an adult. Um, they put a pool in at one point, and I was like, what's up with the pool? We got a lake. I don't get it. So years later, I'm an adult, and I look, and I'm like, oh yeah, there's cows over there, and they're slightly higher up than the lake, 
hmm, gravity, let's just not go there. Okay, not swimming in the lake anymore, apparently. That's the camp I grew up at. And so the rec hall was the rec hall and the worship center and used for anything and everything that we needed at camp. But it reminded me, just foosball, it was like a flashback all of a sudden of, oh, that's the rec hall, where I remember as a little fourth grader responding to a message by a camp pastor and sitting down on the floor, the concrete floor, with my little devotional guide and some prayer things of basically the, do you want to love Jesus forever and ever, pray these things type thing. In that moment, I just was like, oh my gosh, I remember that rec hall. And I remember that rec hall throughout my spiritual formation years. I remember sitting there being the Jesus freak kid, like scout, shouting out the words to songs. And then I remember being way too cool in eighth grade and like, I'm not singing these songs. This is lame. Well, part of it was there was like really pretty girls around, you know, so I'm not going to, I wasn't going to, I was way too cool to sing the songs. And then flat, fast forward and, and you start to go, oh my gosh, and the other memory that it brought up for me was that this was the same camp, the same rec hall where I sat as a 21-year-old, now a volunteer camp counselor, when I felt this call to full-time ministry. You go, gosh, the same place. All of this started by foosball. And then the, the, the last thing I remember is that then years later, there I am in ministry and my home church says, would you come be the camp speaker for the all-church retreat. And I'm going, oh my gosh, I remember being a kid at the all-church retreat, being a knucklehead kid trying to skip out on the things that whatever guy they had come in and do. And now I'm going to be that guy that has to keep people's attention and not let the kids skip out. And oh my gosh, but it all kind of came full circle. And I started realizing, it was just fun for me to realize all the times, all the moments where God had showed up in my life where God had been very present in my life, and it all started from foosball. And it's just the way that I, I tell you this because I think it's the way that when we start to look back on our lives, it's the way that God intervenes, the way that God interrupts. It's these kind of waterfall moments, and it can be waterfalls or it can be foosball. And I, I just want to encourage you in that, to think about as you think about the letter from Christ that you are, what are those moments in your life where you go, oh my gosh, I could, I, similar to what I just shared, you could trace something like that and go, somebody had an impact on my life and that kick-started this and that kick-started this and then I was that person for someone else and all of these things that you can start to connect. One of my favorite, I also share you that one of my favorite verses in the Bible is in Genesis 28. If you know of Jacob, uh, this is kind of like this, if I had to have a life verse, I, I'll just be honest, I don't like the idea of like the life verse. I, I always felt pressure in college, like, what's your life verse? And I would try to come up with really cool stuff, and um, I just, I never, sorry, that's just a total aside. I don't know why I shared that with you right now. <laughs> One of my favorite verses in Genesis 28, Jacob. Remember Jacob, Jacob and Esau, the twins, and Jacob just is kind of a scoundrel. He steals, his, you know, his brother comes back, I'm about to die of hunger, and he's like, I'll give you this food if you give me your birthright. Like, well, I'm dying of hunger, brother. Yeah, I'll give you this food if you give me your birthright. Stories, right? Power of stories. You can put yourself in that moment and go, oh, that's not a good person who does that. Dad's about to die. Dad sends older brother out. Hey, go fix, go, go find some, an animal. We're gonna have a meal. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you the blessing as the oldest child because I'm about to die and we're gonna pass everything on to you, son. And Jacob and his mom conspire. Hey, while he's out, let's pretend you're the older brother and steal the birthright. Let's do it right there in the Bible. 
right there. Let's steal the birthright. Well, so all that goes down, and, and then what happens, of course, is Esau doesn't quite like his brother after all of this. You can imagine, maybe. And so Jacob is running because he thinks that Esau is going to kill him. He's fleeing. He's running. And this is how the story goes. And the power of the story is he's running. And he finally rests his head. And he has this dream where he sees angels descending and ascending up a ladder to the heavens. And God tells him that he's going to bless him and be with him. And he's the one that the promises of God are going to go through. Jacob, this scoundrel. And he wakes up and he says this. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. I love that phrase. That is probably the story of my life. I am just going and going and going and going, and God has a way of intervening and intervening and intervening. It's not that God shows up, but it's like, Jacob, I bump into him. That's my story. That's my story. It's these moments, and the reason I, I, I share this with you, it's these moments in the otherwise mundane moments of life where God bumps into me. And I, and I feel like it's my job to grab those stories and share them with others. Tell others these stories of where God has bumped into my life so that my letter from Christ, the letter from Christ that is Chad McDaniel that began being written on the concrete floor of that rec hall, in Hordeville, Nebraska, when I was nine or ten years old, that that story, I can share those stories with you and see you go, oh, I can connect with that. I can imagine that. We all have these stories. We all have stories of God's intervention, God's interruption. We all have waterfall stories where we can say, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. One final thought crossed my mind uh, this last week as I was thinking about my kids and camp and my own story and sharing with you all the power of stories, this final thought crossed my mind that my kids now are also a letter from Christ. It's like the Spirit has dipped the pen in the ink and has begun to write the letter, the story that will be their lives. And I started thinking, like, what will the story include some of that is obviously up to them. A lot of it is up to God. But what will that story include? What will they become? Can I imagine the adults they will become, the letters from Christ they might be? And it started making me grateful for those who were sure to make, to, to, who, were, who, who made certain that little Chad got to camp. My parents over the years were crazy people. And because I also played uh, competitive baseball, whatever that meant at the time for a like, 12 and 13-year-old, they would come and pick me up from camp and take me to the baseball game and then take me right back to camp. It's just so that I could be at camp and have these pivotal formational experiences. And it makes me think of camp counselors, parents, youth pastors, family members, who, who by me observing the letter from Christ that was them, poured into and helped write this letter from Christ. We are, and here's the last piece, we are letters, we are the stories that can demand an eternal return to our words, that can demand an eternal return where people are, are coming into interaction with you, interaction with me, and saying, I'm wrestling with why that person lives the way they do. I am puzzled over why that person lives the way they do. The story that person is writing is compelling. I want to know more. 
we have this opportunity then to share our stories with others, and we're going to get to that in a couple weeks. So I want to just leave you, leave you this morning with this. Do you know someone who has inspired you, made you ask questions, puzzled over how they ended up the way they did? Would you, can you think of someone whose story is so compelling, so interesting, puzzling, it causes you to go like, oh, how did they come to this place in their life? Could you hunt them down this week? Did you take them to coffee, to lunch? Ask them to share some of their story. I've had this awesome privilege of some of you saying like, hey, I just wanna, let's have lunch, let's grab coffee, and I've heard bits and pieces of your stories. It's so amazing when you start to get to know someone and start to hear the struggles that they've had in faith, the way that they've gotten through those things, the joys that they've had. It's such an awesome privilege, and I think we need to do that more with each other. So the beginning of all of this, the challenge of all of this is to start sharing and listening to each other's stories. And for you, maybe the starting place is, what are those waterfalls in your life? Where you go, that's my story. And they, this is my story, this is my song. What's your story? I love asking that question to people. What's your story? It usually stumps people, which is kind of funny. Like, what do you even mean by that? What do you want to know? What's your story? What are the highlights of your life? What is Christ doing in writing the letter that is you? Remember, stories are powerful. Would you pray with me? God, it is true, you are in the process of writing letters, writing stories using our, our lives. It's a really cool thing, Lord, when we are made aware of the times where you are present, God. And, and, and the truth is, God, you're always present. So it's more about us being aware of your presence than you magically showing up once in a while. Make us more aware of your presence in our lives, God. Help us to see those times, even in the mundane, the everyday tasks. Help us to see and embrace those times where you are there in a tangible way. God, help us to listen well to each other and to share with each other the way that you have been at work in our lives. Thank you, Lord, for the way that stories have such an impact on us and on our world. Thank you, Lord, for the example of that in your parables, the way that they, they cause us to wrestle through what it means to be your followers. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.